CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Most of us want to be good, but we also want to be seen to be good. But aren't those two goals contradictory? Isn't the desire to be seen to be good a means of placing ourselves higher than others, gaining status and position as a result? Should we conclude that the attempt to be seen to be good is immoral and call it out as hypocritical? This would include philanthropist donations, explicit piety on the part of the religious, as well as virtue signaling, be it on campus or on social media. Or is being seen to be good vital to cement socially positive behavior? Is explicit public demonstration of morality the only morality worth having? To discuss this moral gaze of public morality, we invite world-leading cultural theorist Kwame Anthony Appiah, Professor of Sociology and African Studies and International Authority on Race, Crystal Fleming, and founder of Prospect magazine, David Goodhart. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. I'll hand you over to our host for this debate, Mark Linsmeyer. Hey folks, let's meet our speakers. David Goodhart is a British journalist and cultural commentator and the founder and former editor of Prospect magazine. Crystal Fleming is a professor of sociology and Africana Studies at Stony Brook University, an international authority on race, and author of three books on race, anti-racism, and white supremacy. Kwame Anthony Appia is a British Ghanaian philosopher who's received numerous awards, including being named a top global thinker by Foreign Policy magazine and receiving the National Humanities Medal at a ceremony at the White House. So we're going to start with a three-minute opening statement from uh, each of those folks in order. So let's start with you, David. Is it wrong to want to be seen to be good? Um, no, I don't think it is, really. It's kind of how you do it, though, isn't it? People have always signaled virtue, I guess. Perhaps what's different about it now, why it's become kind of almost a political issue. But um, I think one of the things that's made it different now is that there was, there was more agreement in the past, at least in the kind of dominant or most, um, most sort of cohesive culture there was, a, there was more of an agreement about what virtue was. We live in more value plural times. About 100, 150 years ago, we had religious belief, we had um, patriotism, we had traditional social roles, all of which gave us a, a pretty clear collective idea of what virtue was. And of course, we also had less opportunity in the past to signal virtue widely. I mean, we could only signal to people we met, really. Um, um, and of course, technology and, you know, social media, most famously, you know, Twitter is a, is, you know, is, is a great institution for, or at least for some people, for, for virtue signaling. But, and, and, and I think certainly in, in the kind of modern political context, signaling virtue, signaling membership, isn't it? It's signaling membership of, 
of, a, of an identity group or a or a kind of ideological group or a political group or whatever. I mean, it's a we associate it very much with a kind of activist phenomenon. And I suppose in you know in in the language of my last book, uh, the road to somewhere, which I do, you know the, the talk of uh, people who see the world from anywhere, people who see the world from somewhere. I mean, there is a sort of tendency, I guess, in the kind of anywhere worldview, particularly the more activist end of the anywhere worldview, to 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 pro, you know to see. Um, you know the virtue in liberal openness and autonomy, and to be in favour of of you know social fluidity and so on, and to and to want to show that one is it's sort of almost sort of superior to um, to the ordinary run of people because one is you know an elevated sort of ascendant liberal. There was also something a bit sort of childish about it, <laughs> about virtue signaling. You know, children do it, you know, very sort of spontaneously and rather sweetly. You know, look, mummy, <laughs> you know, I've sort of done this. And I think there's something about the fact that we're becoming, a, in some ways, a kind of younger culture in that milestones that people used to achieve in their 20s, they kind of now don't achieve until their late 20s or even their 30s. And that we're sort of, we're becoming a bit more infantile, I think. And, and perhaps an excess of virtue signaling is, is, is part of that. Crystal Fleming, let's uh, move on to you. Your opening statement, uh, is it wrong to be seen to be good? It's, uh, it's human. It's, uh, it's a basic... Uh sociological, even social psychological process, right? So one of the things about morality is that it is a collective endeavor. Uh, Morality has no meaning without uh, socialization, without collective dissemination of ideas, without uh, engaging in communities. So um, wanting to be seen to be good is, and by the way, I don't think everyone wants to be seen to be good. I think there are people who are amoral, but most people want to be seen to be good. And this can both be productive and problematic, right? So not good just for your people or what's good for the dominant groups, but what's good for the maximum you know, set of communities. So the question of what is good is also very subjective. Hitler probably thought he was good. Um, I think we also have to think about things like virtue signal- signaling beyond the individual level. We have to think about historical, larger historical and cultural uh, examples of virtue signaling. signaling. We could think about Western society to take just one example, uh, but most cultures try to engage in presenting themselves as virtuous. But the the virtue signaling of of, of Western culture is something that, for example, would define colonization as good and only good, whereas people who have been victimized by colonization have a very different perspective So I think one of the most important things is not necessarily to want to be seen as good, but to want to engage in the greater good and support the greater good. And also to be open to acknowledging that neither individuals nor entire societies can be entirely good. Right. So having a kind of reflexivity, a kind of awareness of the fact that we are morally complicated uh, beings, both at the individual and collective levels, and, and therefore no one can be only good. In fact, the desire to be seen as only good is also a huge barrier to acknowledging racism, both at the individual and collective level. So if I'm a good person, many people think, well, of course, I can't be racist, which is ridiculous. 
So, um, but, but that desire to present uh, a, a sense of self uh, that is only viewed as good, again, can be a, a barrier, right? That kind of egoic need uh, to believe in, in one's virtue uh, and not acknowledge moral complexity or even try to attain some kind of moral purity. All of that is quite problematic and I think presents barriers to the greater good. Anthony, your opening statement, is it wrong to want to be seen to be good? Well, I think it's wrong to be want to be seen to be good, uh, A, if you aren't. That's obviously a good example of a case where it's wrong. And B, if you care more about being seen to be good than being good. This is just one of the classic paradoxes about honor, which is something I once wrote a book about. Being honorable is being entitled to respect. And so you want to be entitled to respect. You want to be respected by your social peers. But one of the oldest paradoxes about honor is that if, if you want to be recognized as worthy, you can end up pursuing a good reputation without actually worrying about whether you deserve it. And the key thing about honor is you have to deserve the respect. And one of the great ways in which people cheat about honor is they try to get the respect without doing the, the respect-worthy things. So that's a problem. But look, without virtue signaling, we don't get one of the great positive forces of human social progress. When abolitionists, I mean, British abolitionists, uh, led by the Quakers, got going, one of the things they did was they identified as abolitionists and they identified as people who were on the right side of a, of a debate, moral debate. And that sense of being part of a community of people who are on the right side is what drives a lot of social movement. And if you are on the right side, of course, a social movement can think it's on the right side and be wrong, as Crystal pointed out about, about national socialism in Germany. But if you are on the right side, I think this sense of a community of people who are on the right side, who therefore have to signal to one another who we are. And as, as David said, you know, identity is central here. And sometimes the signaling is as much signaling about who we are as it is about signaling about the content good example of this, I think, in the United States where I live is, um, is the ways in which people talk about uh, the Second Amendment, which says that you have the right to bear arms. A lot of people uh, who don't want to bear arms um, signal all the time that, as it were, they belong to that community. And a lot of people who do want to bear arms signal all the time they want to belong to that community. And that can get to the point where people are signaling what their view is about the Second Amendment without actually thinking about the Second Amendment, without actually thinking about what values are at stake. So I think that the, the preoccupation with reputation can very easily distract you from the substance of the thing that you're seeking reputation about, and that's bad. But on the other hand, as I say, once you've got going with a group that's trying to do something good, signaling that you are all trying to do that good thing is one of the things that holds it together. And, and in, in the book I wrote about honor, I focused on a bunch of cases like the rise of British abolitionism, like the end of footbinding in China, like um, the end of dueling in Britain, in all of which there was this shift that occurred and people started signaling yeah. their virtue by, uh, by saying, I'm against dueling, I'm against uh, slavery, I'm against uh, footbinding or whatever. So we seem to have a, a lot of agreement such that, is it good to be, uh, want to be seen to be good? It depends on the circumstance. <laughs> we at least seem to all uh, agree on that much. Um, let's, let's start by getting into the fundamental ethical issue. So there's a, there's a strong strain in ethical philosophy. Kant, for instance, arguing that the goodwill is all that counts. It's not results. Certainly it's not uh, your, your public displays. Um, I, I think Anthony started us off pretty well on that. Uh, David, do you want to kind of respond? Um, yeah. Do you feel like it, morality should be a private affair? Oh, no. I mean, <laughs> I think, you know, like with all things, there's sort of, there's good, I mean, I mean, I think it's both Crystal and Anthony were implying, there's both sort of good virtue signaling and, and hypocritical virtue signaling, and perhaps come a more complicated stuff in between. I mean, 
I mean, in the UK context, you know, wearing a poppy, I mean, you know, most people at a certain time of year wear a poppy. I mean, that's a kind of virtue signaling. It suggests, you know, you've, you've spent a few bob on a, on a poppy and the money goes to the good cause of looking after uh, veterans. Um, I mean, something like, I mean, <laughs> um, you know, round the corner from me, um, I live in Hampstead in North London, a, a, a lovely affluent and pretty liberal area of London. And round the corner from me, somebody um, a few weeks ago, when the whole BLM thing was at its height, had a, had a BLM poster in their window. And I remember kind of, you know, I walked walk by and I remember being sort of mildly irritated by it because, you know, they were, so, you know, most people in the street didn't have one. I didn't have one. And they seemed to be kind of, you know, laying claim to an extra virtue that, that we weren't expressing. Uh, so, that, so there can be something sort of divisive about it and almost kind of bullying about it in certain contexts. Um, I remember walking by the house again the other day and seeing that the poster had come down and sort of thinking to myself, perhaps slightly facetiously, well, do they think that Black Lives Matter less now? <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, um, so um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's messy. I think, I think, you know, one problem is that, um, I mean, if, if a sign in the window is, as it were, just signalling, if that's all you're doing about it, yeah. then there's, I think, you know, that doesn't really add much to social progress. Though, again, there is this phenomenon, you know, which bumper stickers and slogans, uh, whether they're on, on actual walls or virtual walls, can do, which is to say, um, you know, to offer a side to be on. Yeah. I mean, it gives people confidence, yeah. Yeah. So, so it's, I mean, I, you know, I don't know what the people inside that house were, were actually thinking. You know, maybe they were busy really doing lots of wonderful anti-racist things and mm. reshaping their workplaces, and that would be terrific. Uh, if they're just putting up a sign, mm. I think you want to say to them, aren't you on the edge of um, signaling virtue without actually practicing virtue? Mm. And isn't, isn't, isn't that a problem? Um, but I, I don't think, you know, I, I don't think there's any harm in... Um, I mean, just, just to go back to the Kant point, um, you know, Kant did think that, as he said, that the only unreservedly good thing is a good will. But, A, Kant recognized that honor played a role in getting people to do the right thing. And he didn't think that doing the right thing didn't matter at all, right? He just thought that the only pure good thing, purely good thing, was trying to do good. And, that, of course, um, only you know in the end whether you're trying to do good in that sense, it's private. But it's not really uh, private because the good that you're trying to do is public and the good you can't do the public good unless other people are doing it with you. Uh, all the big changes that we need to make are going to have to be done together. I, I, you know, if, if it were up to me, right, I, you know, black lives would matter. <laughs> but but it, isn't, it isn't just up to me. It isn't just up to us. We've got to make movements to, and we've got to reform policing. You got to do things, and if putting BLM signs in your window and then doing something is going to get other people to do it, or if it's going to is it going to make people think, um, you know, I this this local politician said that they wanted to reform the way in which the police deal with uh, with with people who are um, who have drug problems, for example, which is a big a big problem in the United States that the police are given all these tasks which they're completely not trained to do. Well, that's that's 
someone who's seen a BLM sign and thinks, oh, wait a minute, somebody was talking about police reform. And I, I sort of agree that, you know, we shouldn't have a racially divided policing. And if this is part of doing something about that, well, I guess I'll be in favor of that. So I think it can sort of pull people in, mm. but there is the risk that we've all identified of just... <laughs> I wanted to ask about this, this Kantian notion of, of the good, you know, having a, you know, a a goodwill or good intentions, because, you know, as someone who is spending a lot of time these days and many days and for many years uh, talking with people about racism and anti-racism, right? One of the uh, one of the great problems in our society is people thinking that it's their good intentions uh, that protect them from any critique around racism. My intentions were good. I didn't. I didn't mean anything by that. Or uh, you know, of course, uh, uh, Black Lives Matter to me. Uh, but so that that kind of belief that you know one's uh, private or personal or um, you know your your own subjective intention matters more than the consequences of your actions uh, and and that your private perception of your intentions, also that that matters more than the perceptions of people who are harmed by racism um, or other people that are harmed by racism, if you yourself are a black person or person of color, because I don't think it's only uh, white people who have to think about their complicity with systems of racial oppression. But I think that that's a really, I think there are a lot of Kantians yes. <laughs> out in the streets. Right? I mean, I, look, it seems to me that, um, you know, lots of things matter in moral life. It does matter what you're trying to do. And that's relevant to the question of, you know, whether we should blame you. But that isn't the only thing that's relevant to the question of whether we should blame you. Another thing is, uh, were you taking care that what you were trying to do might plausibly be achieved by what you actually did? I mean, so you can be negligent. You can, you can, it's, it's no defense um, uh, if you run over a child. Uh, to say, well, I didn't mean to run over the child. If you were drunk driving, um, you shouldn't have been drunk driving, and it's your, and you're, you're you're to be held responsible, even though you didn't intend the harm you did. So I think, um, uh, you know, in general, in moral life, yes, it matters what you're trying to do, but it also matters what you actually do. And if you're protecting yourself from recognizing the harm that is the consequence of these well-intentioned things you're doing by not thinking about it or by not listening when someone offers critique, then I think you can be blamed. You can be blamed for that. But in lots of contexts, I think that the right thing to say is the angel in the book of gold writing up there to decide whether St. Peter will let you in is keeping track of your intentions. But mm. let's agree that what matters for us together in our social life is the effects of what we're doing. And let's try and understand those. And let's not worry too much about blaming people. Let's worry about changing what we do in ways that will make things better. And I think a lot of I mean, this is sort of somewhat stepping ahead of the conversation, but but I think a lot of uh, uh, a lot of blaming instead of pulling people into the right cause pushes yeah. them away, and that's mm. obviously and that's an example of something that's a good that's exactly an instance, right, of intending the right result but achieving the wrong one. And if you mm. if you intend to to get people on your side in anti-racist activities, but the effect of what you do is to drive them away, you should be criticised, not, not perhaps blamed. Maybe you have a, a blameless uh, soul, but you should be. It should be pointed out to you that the object of the exercise is to get us all on board with making a racially just society. It's not making people feel bad about themselves. But is there a problem because it's so much easier now to, to actually just do it? I mean, doing virtue signalling. Um, partly, as we were saying earlier, for technological reasons, social media, Twitter, and so on, that it has sort of, it has corrupted it to some extent. Um, you know, just quietly and humbly doing good 
<laughs> um, is obviously the ideal, uh, but we are invited now and indeed encouraged to perform. And and I think that this does have corrupting political consequences in a way. I mean, it, it you know, if, if we live in a culture that encourages performative, virtue-signaling political activity that is, to some extent, autonomous of genuinely virtuous activity, I think it has all sorts of negative consequences. I mean, apart from anything else, it makes it harder for politicians to identify as insiders, which is absolutely crucial um, for, for coming to compromises. And, you know, if you spend all of your political energy um, you know, divisively virtue-signaling, it's much harder then to, to actually... Um, you know, to, to, to manage conflict, which is after all what really politics is really all about. I mean, and it, you know, if it's if it's if too much virtue signaling is 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 disabling that process of of managing conflict, um, mm. then um, then obviously right. you know that, that's that's dysfunctional. That connects with the identity point again, right? Because uh, you, you you compromise, which is the, the stuff of politics, right, is about this political identity and that political identity having representatives get together and agree on something that neither of them thinks is the perfect solution, but at least it's better. Each of them thinks it's better than not agreeing at all, right? But in order to do that, I have to give up one of the, I may have to give up one of the key virtues that my group is tied to, identifies with. And so it looks like a betrayal, right? If I do that. And it's a very hard, as you're pointing out, David, it's a very hard thing for a politician to say, look, here's what I think is best, but here's the thing that we can actually do. Yeah. And, mm. and I'm, I, let me be clear, this is what I think is best. But, you know, I live in the real world. My job is, is to make things happen. It's not just to be correct. It's to make the correct thing happen. And I can't make the best thing happen, but I can sure as heck make things better than they are if I work with these other people that I, uh, that I disagree with about this, this, this. Now, I mean, there's a, that wasn't the most efficient way of saying that. But even if you said it in the most efficient possible way, a lot of people will feel alienated because they will say, well, why, don't, why aren't you sticking to the thing that identifies us? We are the people who hold such and such a view. So I think, I think identity comes in very much here, these political identities. I mean, I, I don't know much about the current state of things in Britain, but in this country, our political identities are now such that if you identify as a Democrat or as a Republican, it is really hard to stand up and say, look, this is our value as a Democrat, but I think we need to get to a compromise about this, so, so I'm willing to concede something. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, I think that's, that is very hard, and I think the kind of piling on that happens, uh, I mean, two things happen very easily in the kind of Twitter sphere. One is um, piling on to someone who hasn't actually said what you're piling on to them for mm. saying, right? That's one thing. But the other is it's really hard to, um, to make a complicated thought. Twitter, by definition, limits you to uncomplicated thoughts because it has to be quick, though, of course, you can keep, you can keep linking things together. But I think uh, that means that um, you, know, you have to be incredibly careful not to say anything that can be misinterpreted by people who are busy trying to hold you to the shibboleths of the tribe. Mm. So given the soundbite character, both of Twitter and just political discourse in general, you know, you can give a, a, a three hour speech and you'll get this much quoted out of it. Um, 
how can we differentiate true compassion from virtue signaling, right? Both regarding individuals, regarding politicians. Crystal, do you want to start us on this topic? How can we differentiate true compassion from virtue signaling? Yes. Um, well, first, uh, I want to I go back and thinking about this question, I want to go back to David's example of the Black Lives Matter sign and, and that person's uh, window. Um, and so and then so David was sort of, you know, subjectively thinking uh, or projecting what 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 that person's intent was and, you know, what are they trying to signal? Um, and I think that is a normal and ordinary thing to to question um, at the same time in answering your question, Mark. I feel that in trying to distinguish between real compassion or even, you know, real uh, ethical behavior in one's life and virtue signaling, that it's a question we have to mainly ask ourselves. Um, I think that that is what living an ethical life is about, not so much even the piling on of, you know, uh, each other, but to sort of question ourselves and ask, you know, um, how and to what extent am I practicing my values, not not just in my private life, but also in in my community in in ways that might not be visible, you know, on social media or on Twitter. I think that the 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 greater good can only be um, I don't know if it can be attained, but it can only be uh, aspirationally realized if that's something that we're integrating into our daily practice. To go back to what I was saying earlier, as a as a practice of reflexivity. So I think that is actually what is, uh, you know, really essential uh, to to promoting the greater good. That is a capacity to uh, to focus mainly on on ourselves, not in a um, individualist way, but to 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 focus on how we're living in community uh, with others in ways that we hope can uh, be somewhat in alignment with our values, and also to allow for the learning process and, and for, for there to be sort of a, um, an acknowledgement that our, our values are in, in, in flux and they change. And we hopefully are learning. Hopefully our moral education is something that we're committed to developing. I think that's also one of the great barriers to, to the greater good. That is this belief that I really get it. I really know what's right, right? That certainty that I know my, my moral certitude uh, is a, a great problem, right? We have to be open to learning and questioning and, and expanding our, our understanding of, of what is good and having a critical lens on that. Um, so, uh, you know, compassion uh, for me personally is... Uh, it's a spiritual practice. And by spiritual, I don't, I don't mean religious. I mean that it has to do with, uh, with the unseen. It has to do with, uh, you know, the, not only or even mainly the life of the mind, but like one's heart and in developing uh, a sense of empathy uh, with, with others. Um, so I think that can only really be done off of Twitter. I don't think that you can <laughs> that on Facebook or social media. I think that that is something that is part of your, um, it has to be integrated into your daily life as a personal practice. But I mean, I come back to this problem of pluralism in a world of greater political transparency through things like, like Twitter and social media. Um, we are on the one hand, we're being invited to to, to virtue signal, to kind of take side in culture wars and identity politics and so on. On the other hand, 
you know, we're meant to also be celebrating the fact that the whole point of liberal societies is that we're allowed to believe in radically different things. We're allowed to have radically different moral goals. Um, I'm obviously not in every area of life, but, uh, um, you know, you can't have the, the sort of pro-murder group <laughs> I mean, <but laughs> and the anti-murder group, but, um, but, in, but in many other areas. So these two things are both slightly pulling against each other, aren't they? I mean, the, the pluralism and the kind of requirement of, of transparency and, and, in a sense, moral consistency. You know, I mean, good virtue signaling is about moral consistency, isn't it? It's about how your, your, your um, surface behaviour is consistent with your deeper inner behaviour and, and actions. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I'm not quite sure how we sort of deal with that. I guess I think that, uh, I mean, I know that's the standard way of thinking about what liberal societies are about, and I have some respect for it. But I, I think that the truth is, and that was, it was evident in your remark, David, about the anti-murder and pro-murder things. The truth is that we, we have to agree on more than just that yeah. we're going to be pluralists. Uh, we, we, and you know, the, the classic version of liberalism that John Stuart Mill uh, developed in On Liberty said that uh, the, the, the range of uh, freedom of action should be limited by the harm principle, by the principle that, you, that uh, one of the things you're not allowed to do in, a liberal, in any decent society, but certainly a liberal society, is harm other people. And then all the work has to go into having a discussion about what's harm, and that's... Mm. Deeply difficult and controversial matter is, um, I mean, so just to take an example that comes from the world of our current world of dispute, um, how much is certain kind of speech so harmful to people that mm. the general liberal tendency to feel that uh, you should allow people to say more or less whatever they want uh, uh, should has limits, right? Are there are there limits on hate speech? Is it is it really a terrible fact about Germany? That they have a law that prohibits Nazi uh, mm. defences of Nazism. Uh, there are Americans who think, uh, some of them in the law school with me at NYU, who think that you know our attachment to freedom of expression should be so uh, mm. central that we should we shouldn't think about um, uh, banning uh, any kind of speech at all. Now, um, there may be reasons for not. Allowing the state to ban speech, uh, and and my, and I'm inclined to be on that side, but only because I think the state's likely to ban the wrong speech. <laughs> that is, it's just going to ban criticism of the government if you allow it. Uh, it'll call it sedition, but um, but it'll just so so. There may be reasons for uh, for this, but I don't think I don't think the idea, for example, that um, that that words can't harm people. That's not a sensible idea. Words are very, very powerful, and they can harm people. That doesn't mean that we should shut people up. As I said, there may be reasons for not doing that. But so I think that um, you know, I mean, we're we're supposed to be talking about uh, just differentiating true compassion from virtue signaling. But um, my, my own view is that in political life, um, we shouldn't worry too much about what's going on in the souls of our politicians. We should worry about what they do. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, so I don't care whether the prime minister or the president uh, uh, responds well to a hurricane in Louisiana because it's in his heart or because it's good for his polling. I don't care. What I want him to do is to do the right thing in Louisiana. Uh, now, 
in my view, the right thing to do is the compassionate thing. So if he is compassionate and intelligent, he will do the right thing. But, you know, as I say, in the end, what matters in politics is about is as much there's a role in politics for saying things and symbolizing things. I don't mean to deny that. But at the heart of politics is getting stuff done. So in that sense, I don't really mind too much. If they're virtue signaling in a way that means they will be that they were nailing a flag to a banner, to, to, to a post that they're going to be stuck with whatever's going on in their heart, right? If they, if they signal attachment to something, I don't care whether they're following it because they're, it's in their heart. I, I want the flag up there to force them, the signal, to force them to do the right thing. And if, they, if the signal is the right signal, I'll support them. And I don't really care much about what's going on in their souls. So can we talk explicitly about tolerance? Um, would, would less explicit moral judgment in the public sphere promote more tolerance? Is tolerance the goal, a goal that we should be shooting for? Is, is all the uh, moralizing uh, making it a less tolerant, less peaceful world? Can we maybe start uh, with you, David, with this? Um, you know, how do we reconcile a more value plural society, which undoubtedly we have now compared to even 50 years ago, let alone 100 years ago, a value plural society with one that has a sort of sufficient basis of shared norms and virtues, if you like, that we can all happily signal away on and, and sort of feel um, feel we're being consistent about. I mean, you then, I mean, the, the argument then just shifts to what's in the zone of pluralism and what's in the zone of the shared norms, doesn't it? I mean, um, and I guess, you know, tolerance is one of the things... Um, you know the basic sort of mechanics of democracy and and tolerance is is a necessary condition of um, you know of, of having political exchanges between people of different views and, and coming to some sort of conclusion both in civil life and in and in the formal political sphere too so those um, that I mean that you know tolerance is right up there in one of the kind of essential non negotiable things I think in the in the um, in the, in the zone of, of necessary common norms to just make the make the thing work, um, but I think there are lots of other issues that are that are very difficult to, to you know, and that perhaps partly what politics is about is is allow you know is, is deciding what's in the zone of pluralism where people can agree to disagree and society can you know well possibly with some difficulty live with those big disagreements, live with those big value divides, you know that I mean. I mean, it's legitimate in some way for you know evangelical Christian people to be to be anti-gay, um, and it's legitimate for you know to gay people for gay people obviously to be pro-gay, um, and indeed for for most liberal-minded people who are who are who are not gay to be pro-gay. But um, you know, these are um, there there are lots of areas like that where where conflict is necessarily inbuilt into any, any healthy liberal democratic society. Um, and too much, you know, the, the greater ease of, 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 of virtue signaling provided by modern social media, I think has made a lot of these problems worse, not, not better. Crystal, do you want to respond to that? I mean, is there, uh, I guess about the limits of tolerance about tolerance as a, you know, do we need some intolerance to, push social goals forward that uh, presumably are shared, even if not explicitly acknowledged by 100% of the population? So there are a few things that come to mind on, on this theme. Um, 
The first is that I think we need to have a power analysis of tolerance. And everything I've heard so far is very much just sort of at the individual level. Um, when I when I'm talking about a power analysis, I mean if we take history seriously and sort of the historical context in which uh, not only our moral values but our cultural ideas have been constructed, and uh, you know that there's hegemony that there's, there's, there's hegemony in which values and perspectives and ideas dominate in any given historical, cultural, and social context. Then um, specifically, uh, since my area is race and racism, if we take all that seriously, then we have to admit, for example, that people who are racialized as non-white, I'll speak mainly of the U.S. context, that we are socialized to tolerate um, all kinds of things that are endemic to racism. So to tolerate, uh, and when I say tolerate, I mean to, to take to, to accept to some degree, to live with, to, to navigate. So one becomes habituated to tolerating and accepting uh, different aspects of racial oppression, uh, stigmatization, injustice, uh, even the idea that, you know, sort of to riff off of some of what David said, uh, what he was saying about, you know, that it's uh, legitimate for certain people to be anti-gay. Um, you know, when you live in a white supremacist or racialized society, uh, such as ours, uh, we become habituated to thinking that being anti-black is is legitimate. That it's 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 treated often as just another opinion. Uh, it's the other side of the Black Lives Matter debate. You know, it's legitimate to think that Black lives don't matter. Um, the reality is that for for centuries, people have been morally educated. To, to actually not only be anti-black, but to be pro-murder, actually. I, I, I really disagree with the idea that there, you know, there's no, um, you know, uh, sort of social recognition uh, that it's okay to be pro-murder because that's what a lot of racism is about. It's about uh, either justifying, for example, indigenous genocide in the case of the United States, but also other countries that engage in settler colonialism. That's murder. So um, in any case, uh, I think we have to have a power analysis of, of tolerance. And that also means if we're going to uh, engage in, you know, helping to promote the greater good and specifically like around issues of, of anti-racism, um, then we have to be honest that when we begin to address uh, uncomfortable truths and uncomfortable realities uh, that people who benefit uh, from uh, systemic white supremacy, uh, that they're going to have to have to consider uh, historical legacies and ongoing realities that uh, they're going to feel defensive about. Uh, and I think that defensiveness often is, 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 and even in cases where we're not saying, anti-racists aren't saying you're a bad person for, you know, for whatever your behavior or whatever, even just to bring up the issue of racism is sometimes interpreted as a personal attack, right? So you're saying I'm not a good person. So it's, it's this defensiveness uh, that can often be the barrier rather than the person making a moral judgment. Sometimes just bringing up race and racism is interpreted as a moral judgment of one's character. Uh, and that in and of itself uh, is both a misperception, but also part of um, the, uh, the the social and political dynamics that reproduce racial oppression. So I'll stop there. I think, I think the question of toleration is, is sort of complicated because, um, so to, to, I mean, etymologically, it has to do with bearing with something. So to tolerate something 
you have to first of all think of it as somehow bad or wrong, and then you have to agree to accommodate it somehow. But um, so just take take the anti-gay person. I, I mean, um, t- toleration in the sphere of speech, for example, allowing people to make Christian arguments against uh, gay marriage, for example, is not the same as toleration in the sphere of action. We're not. Mm. Uh, you, you're allowed to be. You're allowed to make these Christian arguments, and and if you are, if you're serious about them, and if you want them to be in the public sphere, you're going to have to listen to the Christian arguments against homophobia too. You're going to have to listen to the Christians who are on the other side, and the non-Christians, the, the Jews and the Muslims and the and the atheists who are going to tell you different things. Um, but we don't tolerate uh, homophobic attacks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, of course. Since I was raised a Christian, I should say that I doubt that any sensible person would think that a reasonable interpretation of the New Testament requires Christians, even those who think that uh, gay marriage is wrong, physically to attack gay people. That's probably not going to be counted as a Christian position on any sensible view of what Christianity might entail. But so um, toleration, you know, it's it's about you're tolerating particular things, and I think we need a notion and. and David was talking about this. We need a notion of the, the, the sort of um, what, what J- John Rawls, the philosopher, called uh, reasonable conceptions of the good uh, should be allowed to flourish. We should listen to each other and we should recognize that we disagree. And then there'll be an overlap in the reasonable conceptions of good about things we all agree about. So we prefer democracy to, to tyranny, for example. Um, you know, th- that's not one of the things that's, that's up for serious debate, though. I happen to think that if people want to argue for tyranny, it's so unlikely to be successful uh, <laughs> that I don't care about their being allowed to do it. I'll tolerate that. That means that there, the notion of toleration requires the idea, I think, of the intolerable, of the things that we, we, we come, uh, this is David's point, really, we, we, we've got to have some common values, otherwise we can't run the ship of state together. Mm. Um, and I think that one of the effects of a certain kind of um, polarizing discourse is to um, to distort our perceptions here. Because if you if you sort of try and push people's um, ideologies and names and identities aside, and if you just ask them to think about what they really think about things, you know, most people are not against and not in favor of, for example. Um, even people who are quite racially prejudiced are not in favor of racial assault, mm. right? Uh, uh, not many people defend lynching anymore. So there are lots of things where uh, even if you say, well, we have to listen to racist speech, we have to tolerate racist speech, we have to tolerate homophobic speech. There are lots of things where, um, uh, where we, I think, you know, uh, what does tolerate mean, right? It can mean mm. not lock people up for doing something, but it doesn't mean that I have to say to someone who's homophobic, um, well, you have your opinion. Uh, I, I'm free, I'm free in, in my way uh, to say, look, um, if, if you've got arguments for that, tell, them what, tell me what they are, and here's my arguments for the other side. And um, my toleration is, extends to being willing to discuss this, but again, it doesn't extend to allowing you to beat me up. Uh, since I happen to be a gay person, um, so so I think you know we've got to think about the sort of the contours, as it were, of toleration. Recognize that they're complicated, and 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 that, and that um, now on the on the particular issue that we're discussing. I mean, I think um, my own view is that talking to to people who are quite homophobic, for example, but in a sort of patient way, is probably more effective 
than just telling them that they're homophobic. What you're saying is, if you say you, you know, Christianity doesn't permit gay marriage, fine. Um, so don't marry people in your church, uh, gay people in your church. But the state is a different thing from the church, and gay marriage is a state institution, and it has to be something that works for... Surely it should be something that works for most citizens. And even if you think that what homosexuals are doing in bed is wrong, they also have large areas of their lives which are not going on in bed. And in those areas of their lives, it's helpful for them to have the kind of security and protection that marriage provides for couples. And so you can, you can now, you know, you can be saying in your heart all the time, God, this person's a homophobic shit. But, <laughs> but if you want to be effective, that won't work. I agree with that. Uh Thank you so much, Anthony David Crystal. Very enlightening. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.